Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, Pete Wadgen here. So this is probably our most ambitious podcast series yet. Why? Because everyone in investing has an opinion and an interpretation of Warren Buffett and his investment style. If you Google Uncle Warren, you'll get 72 million results and there's no doubt that he's the king of investing. What we want to do is determine if we can distill Buffett's 80-odd years of investing into a podcast mini-series that can help you as an investor. So we'll list a few Buffettisms and we'll dissect each one in a little detail to try and extract the wisdom, what lessons can we learn, which are the important lessons. And what we can see is that many of them are on the same topics and expresses the same point in different ways. And we'll finish this series with the ultimate question, is Warren Buffett unique and can we all be a little bit more like Buffett? So join us as we discuss the Buffett philosophy, his principles of investing and what we can learn and whether we can replicate his style to build your wealth. And after all, as Buffett himself said, your best investment is in yourself and there's nothing that compares to it. So join Steve Moriarty and myself as we dissect a few Buffettisms and see what we can glean from the master. Cheers. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Steve Moriarty. G'day, Stephen. How are you, mate? I'm really good, thanks. So um, let's crack straight into the fifth episode of our Warren Buffett mini-series. Um, so I was just having a chat this week. Um, one of my old uh, school friends from England is actually, she's a Kiwi citizen these days, and she's actually moving to Brisbane. And we were just having a bit of a, a yak on uh, Facebook and a bit of a laugh about some of the old uh, friends and reprobates we went to school with back in the day. But we were just having a, a bit of a chuckle about... Um, a couple of the uh, sort of loose cannon people that we went to uh, school with, and there was a couple of uh, lads on the um, on the council estates who, if you went around their place, there was literally there were no parents around, and it was just kind of weird. You, you could, you know, it was almost like a kid in a candy shop. It's like what? So you can, you know, you can go to the drinks cabinet, or you can stay up till three in the morning, and they were like, yeah, completely normal. And uh, I think it's only really dawned on me now become a parent that's actually not what kids want you know kids actually want boundaries they yeah. want somebody to say say no when you're doing doing something that's out of line I think it actually doesn't necessarily help you having that lack of ability to say no to stuff or or have boundaries and and that is the theme of today's uh, episode really um is um uh, a buffetism and that is the, the the difference between successful and unsuccessful people is the, the very successful people have a, a really strong ability to say no to stuff. And in fact, they say no to almost everything. And it's definitely something that 
I've seen in the corporate career, if you say yes to everything, it can really hold you back because you just get absolutely snowed under with stuff you don't want to do. It's a really important point because it, if you say yes to everything, there's, I think there's an old saying, you know, like if you say yes to everybody, then, you know, nobody ends up happy. And I think it really is the same with investing where you try all these different styles and part of it is you're, you're getting this flow of information because you're curious about, you know, what's the best way to make money outside of, you know, working hard in a job. And so you get all of these sort of this this flood of uh, be a fundamental investor, be a quantitative investor, you know, do it Warren Buffett, no, 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 do it moving averages and all that sort of stuff. The thing that sort of dawned on me with this Buffettism was our timeless principles and how they generally keep you grounded to a point of saying no. And I, I just use my own investing career as a as an example. You know, like I spent the, probably the first five to ten years working out what the hell I wanted to do in terms of being an investor. A, a lot of it comes down to again, this this mix of luck and skill um, in determining what is sort of what are the successful principles to adopt. And it, it can be really tricky, you know, because a lot of people, for example, in this last bull market, which has been running for about 10 years in the US, probably have got the idea that they've got a lot of skill, but also in the sense of thinking that the principles they're using work but they may only work just, you know, at this occasion, but not throughout the whole life cycle. Yeah, we've, we've all got that amazing ability. When when something goes well, we have this incredible uh, uh, capability to think, well, how, how good we have been, how skillful we've been, but actually very uh, much more reticent to recognise when something has purely been about luck or even partly about luck. I think it's it's just human nature. And if something goes wrong, we tend to find reasons or things to blame rather than just recognising uh, where things have gone wrong and, and improving for next time. So we mentioned uh, once before Buffett's um, famous presentation in 1984 on the super investors of Graham and Doddsville yeah. and um, won't go through the whole detail of the presentation, but essentially uh, what he found was, or what he was saying was, well, if you if you flipped a coin, in a group of uh, a random group of 10,000 investors, well, some would necessarily win quite a few times in a row because that's just random luck. Uh, but if you actually look over time, what he was uh, pointing out in the presentation is that the people who have generated outperformance consistently over a long period of time uh, tend to have a value investment framework or method that they use. Um, and he said, well, you know, it could be just random chance if it was one or two people, but he highlighted a range of investors who've achieved uh, fantastic returns over a very long period of time. Uh, so Buffett is obviously uh, over a period of what, 75 years has, has uh, refined his method of investing for value and trying to understand what works and what doesn't. I mean, Buffett's had two had one big switch in his life, which was from the early Ben Graham type, what they call deep value investing now, the net nets and, you know, book value and that sort of stuff. And then he trans he transformed himself sort of a little bit via Charlie Munger into a, a sort of growth slash value investor. When I was sort of thinking about this, you know, it, it gets to the point about success. And one important point I remember out of reading Buffett's um, 
biography from Alice Schroeder, The Snowball, was there seemed to be a little bit of a, not I, I wouldn't say regret, but there just a, a, maybe a tinge of regret in Buffett spending so much time making money and not really paying attention to the relationships and stuff. Um, I know if you read through it, it was pretty obvious he was fairly devastated when his wife um, said, look, Warren, you know, I've had enough and I want to do something else. Um, he was quite, you know, good about it, but it still didn't stop him making money, um, you know, so he, he still he didn't sort of throw up his hands and go, okay, I'll retire. He went, oh, right, okay, that's a bugger, but, you know, I'll go on making money. So it just, and we'll talk about this sort of at the end, it's just the idea of, you know, what success is, but it really does get down to, I think, like we were saying in the Buffettism about saying no to more things than it does to saying um, yes. I know Steve Jobs also said it, you know, that success is saying no 95% of the time or something. Yeah, I've actually heard Charlie Munger say similar things in a presentation uh, in terms of, you know, some of the wealthiest people in history have been miserable as sin and therefore you can't just define success as investment returns if you don't live a happy life. So, and I think that's, that will be a good place to wrap up today at the end of the pod um, when we can talk about well, what actually is yeah. um, success. Uh, but I think it, it, for investors, I think um, you know, clearly Buffett's approach has been to grow long-term wealth because you have to laugh when people say you know he's lost his touch or he's underperformed over discrete periods of time. When he's got a net worth of a hundred billion US dollars, so he, <laughs> I guess he can take. Performance. <laughs> yeah, I guess he can take those criticisms on the chin when you're worth a hundred billion US. But uh, yeah, I, I think um, you know what Buffett would say is um, using the value approach. Yeah, they take two steps forward and just a small step back instead of what people often do, which is two steps forward and then a huge step back. So and I think that um, ties back to that, that rule number one that we mentioned in one of the earlier episodes in the, the series is that uh, Buffett has had a lifetime really of avoiding uh, big losses and that, that is one of the key secrets to his wealth. Uh, but, uh, now, we've we've isolated today um, uh, nine different points uh, for us to run through in terms of um, uh, how to say no to most things and I'll definitely be using this as a bookmark as I tilt from uh, real estate more towards equities in the in the later part of my investing life because I think it's it's really important to remember these things but before we just run through those nine points one of the things that Buffett has said is that you don't need a high IQ to be a great investor which is quite reassuring for most of us who clearly uh, don't have the compound interest tables in our heads like Warren does. And I guess that's where the eight timeless principles really help because they are in many respects uh, a very simple framework to use. The idea behind any sort of systematic approach is is twofold. One is developing the approach um, that you're that you're comfortable with and then two is sticking to it. And the the sticking to it bit doesn't require any IQ. It just requires, and, and Buffett himself has said, you know, like you, you important to have temperament that it is to have a high IQ. And so the idea behind the, the eight principles is to say these are the principles that work and there's heaps of evidence and proof and we, you know, you and I are sort of living proof of that, if I can put it that way. 
The second part is the really tough bit for a lot of people, which is sticking to it. Um, and again, it's because you get periods like Buffett where you get underperformance. And so you then, you know, that's when as a, as a beginner or an intermediate, as soon as something stops working, you tend to sort of think, oh, well, you know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe there's something else. And so you go in search of something else when in actual fact that that's not really the reason why you're wrong. It's just that all strategies will have a period of underperformance. Um, and so once you, if you can even recognise that point, you can generally still accept it without rushing off to, you know, to try out new things. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it is actually amazing when you start out. I mean, people can uh, flip their investment approach based on one day of stock market moves, you know. it's uh, you know, Or people might buy a stock and then it goes down the next day and, uh, oh, well, you know, that was a terrible idea, you know, as though, as though that has any bearing on whether it was a good or, or bad investment. Um, and it, I guess uh, it takes a bit of time for people to understand that uh, not every strategy will work on day one. Yeah. So, um so let, let's run through these nine uh, points that we've isolated then on the theme of uh, having the ability to say no. So um, uh, point number one, uh, saying no to large risks, even if the reward is large. Uh, so that, in a sense, ties back to the theme of don't lose money. I think it's often tempting to see the potential for big rewards, and that is fine. But if there's a corresponding downside risk, then it's something to be avoided. This is a really, really important part of sticking to your formula and not being seduced into taking large risks for large return. And I think Buffett has done that really well where people have said, oh, you know, he should have invested in Facebook or he should have invested in Amazon or he should have invested in Google. And I think Buffett's always overly polite and going, oh, you know, yes, geez, we missed that boat. And I think what he's really saying or what he's not saying is, look, I have a system that I invest to. It's the way that's worked for me for 75 years. I've got lots of money. It's been successful. Why would I really start turning away from a system that served me so well when I don't need to? His main point is saying, like, like you said at the start with the, that speech he gave with Graham and Doddsville, he was basically saying, if you buy cheap, you'll do really well and you don't need to take large risks. And I think you mentioned last week, Pete, the the saying that they said, you know, um, I think Warren said, or, um, you know, Charlie and I knew we were going to be rich. It was just a matter of how long it took. And that's a, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, that's supreme confidence, but it's also, it's also quite clever when you think about it because what it does is it, it allows you to sort of, stick to your, you know, the, the task, knowing that you've got the confidence that you've actually got a good system that will work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, that, I think, yeah, that came up last week, didn't it? It was uh, from, I think it was one of their investor meetings where they uh, they were talking about the perils of leverage. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that's a really good point then. So the first one being um, saying no to large risks. So point number two that we've isolated here is that it's okay to say no to expensive markets. So we've uh, talked almost in every episode about the CAPE ratio, and we've also made the point that you don't have to be 100% invested all the time, which seems to have become uh, an increasingly uh, strongly held view in some 
sectors of, of the market. I, I, I think that's possibly simply, as you said, because we've been in a bull market since um, 2009, that people think that if you're not 100% invested, you're in some way missing out. But uh, I think, um, as we've mentioned there, Buffett doesn't necessarily try to benchmark himself against the S&P 500 over discrete time periods. Uh, his goal is simply to continue increasing his wealth over his investment lifetime. It's a it's a really, really interesting point, this one, because a lot of people, this is a, an argument that gets around, you know, or gets back to the buy and hold versus, you know, timing the market, which, you know, I don't like using that phrase because it's actually not correct. Um, but again, what it is, is it's sort of saying that you've got to have the ability to say no when things are expensive, which Buffett has successfully done. The smart part of that is, he knows something's good, but he just waits for the price to come to him. And so we sort of do the same thing by saying to people, well, look, I know markets will deliver a good return, but they're not at the moment. So that doesn't mean I'm missing out or anything, particularly because we know the markets will decline and have big drawdown events. Even if they don't, they get to a point where you can actually still get good value and so I always think it's a little bit lazy to to think about investing on a basis of, oh, you just buy stocks and hold them. And I, I, I sort of, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me when you can quite plainly see that there's market cycles and that there's sometimes it's worth having a lot of money in the stock market, but at other times there's not, other times there's um, markets are really dangerous. And so I think it's it's all right to say no to expensive markets, um, and Buffett himself does that. You know, he seems to have done fairly well over the last 75 years. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And look, the, uh, point three, say no to emotions, is directly tied to that. Uh, saying no to emotions is probably another way of saying be patient because, you know, we, we've talked a, a lot in previous episodes about the different ways you can measure the overall market value. Uh, now, Buffett has tended to focus on individual companies and therefore he can still make sizable investments even when the overall market is expensive. Uh, but I think for people who are taking a value-based approach and not looking to lose money, you've got to have some awareness of the, the macro environment that you're in as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, th I think this one's pretty straightforward. You know, Buffett has always basically said, if you can't manage your emotions, you can't manage money. So to me, it's just a an extension of the point before by saying, you know, when a markets are expensive, it generally means that everybody's had a really great time. So naturally, there's a lot of high emotion, which you can see around at the moment. So really, I think it's a pretty it's a pretty standard one that um, you and I talk about a lot, which is to try and avoid the emotions and go back to, you know, just looking at the numbers. Yeah, exactly. And uh, on the on the theme of numbers then, so point four, say no to crap expected returns. I, I don't think that's the exact note that I wrote down, but <laughs> I, think, uh, I think a better way of saying that might be um, calculate your expected returns. Um, now, we know that Buffett has a hurdle rate of 10%. And if an investment is not expected to deliver those kind of returns, he would normally rule it out. So, of course, uh, you know, Buffett has missed, in inverted commas, many opportunities as a result of taking that approach. But um, you can see over time that he's been very successful. 
I think you mentioned before that one of the, the, the great books, if you're interested in calculation of investment returns and Warren's approach, uh, the book um, Buffettology um, has got, if you're uh, somebody who likes formulas, you'll have a great time in that book. Um, but I think um, the overarching point is here that quite often, it seems to me in a bull market, people aren't really, well, they don't necessarily have any awareness of expected returns. And I know we've talked uh, about the CAPE ratio and how that can help you to calculate an expected return over the coming decade, for example. Yeah, yeah. If you have a look at the one that always strikes me at the moment is um, Tesla. Um, and in Australia, probably um, things like Afterpay. Um, and and this is where it gets a little bit, I suppose, sort of controversial where, you know, when a stock's had a, some of them had, you know, 500, 600% runs, you tend to think that it's going to continue on. But as Buffett sort of shows you, that's that's okay. And, you know, people will pull one or two of them in their career. If they pull 10 or 12, well, you know, they've probably got some sort of secret. But my my point being, at the top of the market, if you use things like the earnings yield to give you a general expected return, then you see that, you know, at the moment, the markets are really not a really very good place to have a lot of money. And so you should be able to say, just strictly do the numbers and go, nope, that's not a good time to invest. Okay, we'll just sit on the sideline because we know there'll be times when it comes to invest a lot of money. That's when you want to do it. In terms of the individual stocks like Tesla and Afterpay and, you know, a lot of these unicorns, they may well be great companies, but I don't, you know, I'm not buying an investment because they're a great company. I'm buying an investment because I want to make money. So the price is the overarching uh, criteria in my book. And if they, if they don't earn any money, well, you can't work out really an expected return to any great degree of confidence. You may well be right. But again, if I, I sort of say to people, if you're investing for 20, 30 or 40 years, that's a lot of times that you're going to pick a stock and hope that you're right when they don't learn any more money. So, you know, it's really just sit down, do the numbers and, and work through it from there. Yes, exactly. Now, point number five is very topical on not using leverage or say no to leverage. Now, um, as somebody who's invested in real estate from my uh, early investment years, um, I think leverage is something that I'll be looking to steer away from as I rotate to equities uh, later in life. Uh, I think Buffett famously said, if you combine ignorance and borrowed money, uh, the consequences can get pretty interesting. And I think margin lending... Well, we saw in Australia, there was an enormous run-up in margin lending up until around 2007, eight, and then it all blew up. And it's it's never really come back in Australia in the same way, but people have switched into other ways of using leverage like CFDs and so on. And at the moment, there's clearly uh, a lot of cheap money flying around, and this is pretty topical because we saw a multi-billion dollar fund uh, blowing up this very week. And then that was actually in a period of low volatility, which is pretty interesting. So uh, you put together in the in the notes today uh, a little graph for us there uh, showing the growth in margin debt. And there's only a few times in history when margin debt to GDP has jumped by more than 45% in nine months. There was uh, It happened once, I think, uh, during the tech bubble or the dot-com bubble. It happened in the lead-up to the global financial crisis and now during the pandemic 
period in 2020, we've seen the uh, US margin debt growing at the fastest pace on record. So I guess uh, you never know when these things are going to turn around, but that, that is a pretty worrying indicator to say the least. Yeah, yeah. It, um, margin debt is a, is quite a, and it's, it's when you think about it, it's, it's quite a sensible thing to gauge really because the stock market for, for or the, the economy a little bit more broadly needs new money coming in. And if people are borrowing, then that will expand the economy somewhere. Um, and of course, a lot of people borrowing on margin, uh, borrowing on margin to speculate. Um, interestingly, there's those other two times in March 2000 and May, July 2007, we know the CAPE ratio was through the roof, you know. So there's a really interesting book. Uh, called Critical Mass by a guy called Philip Ball. It's not really an investing book, but it's a um, great one people who are interested in science want to read, uh, should read. Uh, what he shows in there is that the stock market really runs a lot on this margin debt issue. And so once margin debt rolls over, that's when stock markets really, you know, take a, a, a downward turn. Um, and when you think about it, it just makes it makes a lot of sense. You know, the the issue is, Pete, I suppose, leverage is lots of fun on the way up, but it's a hell of a drug on the way down. Um, you know, like you, it's nothing like making two or 300% on the way up, but the problem is on the way down, you know, you lose a lot of that really quickly and it becomes really quite ugly. Yeah, look, I haven't used margin debt for years, but my experience of it uh, back in uh, the mining boom years was, as you said, it's, it's a lot of fun when you're magnifying returns and, in fact, uh, you could actually pyramid your margin debt higher because you could use the new stock as yeah. collateral for more margin. But it, it becomes very difficult when you get a margin call or the market declines because then it really does cloud uh, the investment process. It becomes very difficult to make rational decisions and then you've got to either uh, top up your balance or you've got to sell some stock. And you can see how quite quickly that can cascade lower as people start uh, liquidating positions and I, I think that's the risk at the moment is there's just so much margin debt being piled into the system over the past year that uh, the, the risks of things um, coming down quickly uh, are pretty dangerous to say the least so uh, point number six uh, is on systematic investing or focusing on process over outcome which is another way of saying well Buffett's saying no to almost every other form of investing so um, I think it's a, it's a fairly short and obvious point that we've covered before, really. Uh, have a systematic approach. Don't try to invest uh, based on gut feel or what's happening, uh, what your friends are doing or uh, some kind of other, <laughs> you know, like a feel-based approach. So I don't think we need to spend too much time on that one. Point seven, saying no to generality or focusing on your circle of competence. So in other words, uh, read a lot and get an, an area of expertise uh, but try to steer clear of uh, trying to be an expert in everything because you, you simply won't have the time or ability to do that. Buffett often talks about this one, you know, your circle of competence, and I think we talked about it last week, maybe the week before, where we said, you know, the best investment is you. It really is important in investing to understand what your sort of circle of competence is for us, I, I think that's about, you know, sticking to the eight principles and also focusing on this stuff about, you know, logic over emotion. I think that's really important. 
Um, as you mentioned there, a lot of the a lot of the success there is basically uh, expanding your knowledge. And I think generally, I mean, I've found over my career, you generally find things that ring your bell, and you tend to drift towards them. So I'm I'm much more of a sort of um, I think my circle of competence is macro, not micro. Balance sheets, yeah, okay. Does it drive me wild? Mm, not really. Um, but global economics does and macro stuff. So other people I know are like, you know, maybe even like yourself, Pete, being an accountant, you know, you you can get down into the sort of forensics of a company, whereas I'm much more of a, a macro sort of guy. So it, it really just about saying which way do I go and, and, you know, where's my sort of advantage, which as you and I talk about with the Kelly criteria, you know, the edge over the odds. So, what you've got to figure out what your edge is, whether it's a macro, whether it's a micro or, you know, what sort of thing will help you get really, really good returns. Yeah, exactly right. So point number eight out of the nine is saying no to noise and focusing on the signal. So I think actually directly tied to what you just said there, I've heard uh, Charlie Munger and Warren in a, an investor meeting saying uh, they – it should be really obvious when you find a good investment, um, you shouldn't need to spend hours and hours and hours looking at uh, detailed notes. I think uh, Buffett said he's never invested in a company because, or not invested in a company for that matter, because of some issue with an operating lease or, you know, something buried on, you know, note 35 of the annual report. You know, what he's looking for is really obvious investments that he knows will do well. Over the long time, over the long term, and I think, uh, as you said, uh, I think it is sometimes easy when analysing companies uh, trying to pick the right investment. You can go way down that rabbit hole of calculating numbers and you know looking at uh, every last detail. But if it's not really obvious, then it's probably not the investment for you. Yeah, I think um, the important part about the signal and noise, or you know, ch- choosing the signal, not the noise, is. When you become successful, you start to see signals everywhere. You know, so it's so like, oh, that's a winner. Oh, that's a winner. So, and that's where you break down, you know, not in all cases, but that's where you break down from a successful uh, sort of process is instead of saying no to lots of things, you start saying yes to too many things based on your idea that, you know, you're getting all these signals and you're getting all these signals because you're having so many winners. And I think it happens to a lot of people. Generally, again, you get a bull market run, you know, you can pick a crappy stock, it still makes 100 or 150%. And so you then sort of see all these signals to buy all these garbage stocks. So, you know, as we've sort of said, stick to the eight principles and you'll probably do all right. Yeah, and I think on signal versus noise, I think Buffett's famously mentioned that he he might read 500 pages a day or something of that nature. Um, he's not going to get uh, swayed by the daily noise of markets. He, he in fact, he, he's talked uh, before about um, some big resources investments where he hasn't even looked at what the market is doing. He he makes his own assessment of valuation, and then the last thing he will do is look at what the stock market is offering. Yeah. Uh, so he's He's the diametric opposite to somebody who's following uh, the ups and downs of the market every hour or every day. Uh, he's, he's got the patience to wait for really obvious investments. And the final point, point number number nine, which is probably or arguably the most important of the lot, and that is um, saying no to things that could ruin 
your reputation. Uh, and I'll quote, it takes 20 years to build a reputation, but you can lose it in five minutes. No, as you get older, you do tend to get more philosophical about these things and, um, you know, what actually, what is success and, you know, what is a happy life? And when you break it down and when you think about it, what have you really got in life? You've got your family, got your friends and your health. Um, you know, when you actually break it down, you know, there isn't really a whole lot more to life than that. And obviously, uh, investment is only one small part of the puzzle. And I think Buffett himself as you know, as you, you mentioned earlier on, there you know he's realised over time that uh, you know with love, you know you give out more, you get more back, and it's it's not it's not a financial equation. Uh, so I think reputation is is obviously a key part of that as well. So um, any any sort of uh, words of wisdom for us there, Steve? Given you're uh, a few years older than myself, <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> Go to the old guy. Um, yeah, look, I think it is important, Pete, because. The reason why is you, you you get to see money as a means to an end and a lot of the time, you know, and I don't think it's it's necessarily wrong, but I, and I hark back to the point we made at the beginning that I just think sometimes Buffett is tinged with a bit of regret that he could have done a little bit better in his relationships with his children and his, his uh, wife. And so I think success is, is good and you can say no to a lot of things, but one thing you don't want to say no to is the the people around you, you know, once you've got enough money. And it's what um, I often sort of think about a lot because you really, it, it's so easy to get trapped into making more and more money to the point where it, it, it loses its value, but you can't get out of the game, so to speak. And I think you were saying earlier on, you know, there's lots of wealthy people who are really quite miserable. Um, and uh, it's funny because you tend to sort of look at it and go, oh, well, why don't they just stop? But it's not actually that easy. You've got to actually sit down and say, okay, am I at the point where I can cut back or, you know, do I need to focus on other things? Um, and it always comes back for most of us to our relationships, like you said, with family. And I think uh, Buffett said, you know, the trouble with love is that you can't buy it. It's a really, really interesting sort of quote because I think for him, and I, you know, I could be completely wrong, but I think if you get so rich, you wonder whether people are your friends or whether they just like you because you've got a lot of money and you might throw some their way. And that's where it's sort of, you know, that's where actually money becomes unenjoyable and, you know, it becomes quite sort of confusing rather than just realising that people genuinely, you know, like you or love you for, for who you are. So it's, it's, it's tied up with making enough money but then also thinking about whether there's other things that you want to do, you know, with your life. Yeah, well, that's a much more eloquent way of saying don't be a dickhead, which is what, <laughs> uh, which no, dickhead. Which is what I had written down in my notes. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So uh, I was actually reading a, a book recently by a guy called Felix Dennis, who is a, a hugely successful publisher in the UK, but he went through life, you know, had relationship issues. He was an addict. Uh, he um, dusted his health through uh, various uh, narcotics and all the rest of it. And it, it's interesting, you know, because he was just passing on wisdom. He wasn't trying to sell anything in his book uh, in his later years. And he was saying if he had his time again, he would he would reach a certain point of wealth and then just stop and just go and enjoy life and 
uh, see friends and family and all of the rest of it instead of uh, being addicted to just having you know one more business you know one more success because it's a very difficult merry-go-round to get off and I think to wrap up then um, so success obviously in some way uh, related to doing what you love rather than just a monetary figure so yes our eight timeless principles are a very good framework for learning how to say no to most things most of the time but also don't forget our four f's framework fun fitness finance and philosophy in fact we might do a a podcast episode on that uh, coming up fairly soon because there is more to life than just investing and uh, formulas so uh, thanks today steve for the wisdom uh, excellent episode and um i don't know how many episodes we've got left on the buffett mini series we must be getting pretty close to the end so uh, we'll look forward to joining you next week cheers see thanks thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book low rates high returns just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.